I told Jean there's a sermon in it because it's just the absolute depiction of what it is to be adopted into Christ. We're joint heirs with him. It talks about being entitled to heirship as one biologically related to that is exactly what we are in Christ. You know, we are adopted and now we are entitled to heirship as the biological Jesus Christ, the Son. Yeah. It was like a moment for me. This is Big C, Little C, a podcast from Current Church in Franklin, Indiana, where we explore how the local church fits in with the global church and how the kingdom is at work on a local level. Current Church meets on Sunday nights at 6 at The Gear in Franklin and exists to encounter God, equip the church, and engage the world. We believe that whatever God is going to accomplish in this world, He is going to do through the church, Big C. These are our stories and the testimony of the power of God in everyday lives. Find out more at currentchurch.net or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Now here's your host, Jeremy. Welcome to PD Part 2. If you didn't listen to Part 1 of our conversation with Paula Fiesel, I would encourage you to do that first. We pick it up. uh, We'll back up a couple minutes into our conversation so you can get some context, and we'll pick it up there. A reminder that there is a separate SoundCloud account for Sunday evening messages from Gene and Warner and whoever else. That is soundcloud.com slash currentchurchfranklin there. You'll find sermons, as they were, such as this one from last week. Promises don't have timelines. Assurances don't have timelines. It's just an assurance. It's a faith thing. The song of says, I put all my trust in you. Why? Not because you've got the answer, because you've got the assurance. That's right. You've got an assurance that he's able to do what he said he can do. We've been preaching this year about confidence. You can have you can have confidence because he's given you an assurance. I know you want the answer. How long? How long? How long? When, Jesus? When will I be healed? When will things be set right? When will you make the evil go away? When are you coming back? When are you going to organize this stuff? When are we going to quit worrying? When are you going to let my family come to know you? When are you going to bring healing to my body? When are you going to break this sickness off of me? And he says, faith. Faith. Put your trust in me. I've given you an assurance. I've got my eye on it. I've got my eye on it tonight. I've got my hand on it. Again, soundcloud.com slash currentchurchfranklin for recent messages. We get back into our conversation with Paula Fiesel. Thanks for listening. the district office for the Assemblies of God in Indiana, up on the north side by the pyramids. Okay. Candy Wayington was my kind of direct supervisor. And her, as well as a lot, most of the other women in the office, knew that we were undergoing fertility treatments, things like that. So they were praying that God's will would be done, or it would work, or whatever. And when we finally just gave up that, walked away from it, 
um, Candy approached me one day and said that there was a woman that had been mentoring a young lady that was pregnant with her third child and didn't really feel that she could be a parent again to another child. Mm -hmm. Uh, The father was really not in the picture. So we got involved in that situation, hired a lawyer, some a couple at Lakeview had adopted, so they had referred us to this lawyer, pressed into the adoption, um, gave the attorney the retainer. It's a lot of paperwork, a lot of things to sign, and then we found out that the father decided that he wanted to use the baby as leverage to, so he wouldn't sign his release. And it went back and forth for the whole summer of 97. Yes, you're having this baby. It was a little girl. The baby was a girl. You get the baby. No, you don't get the baby. You get the baby. No, you don't get the baby. Cruel. Yeah, it was was rough. Needless to say, we're psychologically, like, drained, emotionally drained, all of it. Um, And every day I would get to work, and there would be a fax from my mom, some encouraging word. Mm back before like the internet and you could email people you know and um she would send me something just to encourage me because she you know we're going through this in indianapolis my mom and dad are five and a half hours away and um it just was hard and the beginning of october the baby was due the end of october um we got a call from our lawyer that said it just wasn't happening it was the end he was like i've done this for 30 years this is when you call it quits So, and essentially, it was like a loss, you know, that you think you're getting this baby in just a few short weeks, five weeks, and then you're not. And um, we left work. I called Gene. He left work. I left work. And for some strange reason, we thought we could eat lunch. So we went to Grindstone Charlie's on Rockville Road, and Ron and Doreen Bontrager were there. No kidding. And just happenstance. And they asked us, because they had been praying about the situation, And they asked us how it had gone, and we're like, well, we just found out this morning that it is a no-go. And they actually were instrumental in introducing us to Tabor's biological mom. That day, they'd ask us, you know, we know the situation, and we've known about it for a short period of time, but we didn't want to approach you with it because we knew you were going through this other situation. But now that that's done, would you be interested? And at that point, I was kind of just numb and like, whatever, you know give them my phone number. Nothing's going to happen. You know, this is just my life. And um, the girl's mom called us that evening and set up a meeting. So we went um, a few days later and met them on the north side of Indianapolis, had lunch with her and her mom. And they kind of laid it all out on the table that they'd had another couple lined up to take the baby. And she had found herself pregnant, so they mutually decided that the adoption wasn't going to happen. But consequently, she's like six months plus pregnant and no identified adoptive parents at this point. So time is of the essence sure. at this point. Yeah. And so we had a lawyer. She had an adoption agency in Indianapolis that she was already involved in, but it was a lot more expensive than going the way we did. So we're like, you know, whatever. My parents were willing to pitch in money, Ernie and Carla, same thing. Um, we had some money put back. So it was happened no matter what. So this, I believe it was on a Monday night because the band always rehearsed on Monday night. Okay. I was home alone just after that meeting with her feeling like, I'm not sure what's happening. Is this you? God, is this going to crash and burn? Like we just crashed and burned with this previous baby. And Her mom called me and said, you know, we just couldn't get you guys out of our head all 
the way home from lunch, we just felt, both of us just privately felt like, you know, we have met the parents for this child, you know, and they they had already called and dismissed their lawyer because mm-hmm. they knew that we, we were the people that they wanted to have this baby. And so they're like, your lawyer's, a, you know, that's a better cost for you guys. Let's go that route. She, the mom had insurance, so we wouldn't be paying anything for her delivery part just for the baby's medical bills and then the legal bills. And so it was kind of a go. And she had already been seeking a counselor, um, counseling for Mm -hmm. adoption, that sort of thing. So she was fairly well adjusted as you adjusted as you can be, I guess, you know, for going through something so life changing. A few weeks later, she called and asked us to be in the delivery room because she wanted us to bond with the baby right away. And she doesn't live too far from the Indianapolis area, so it was a quick trip. Um, she was due on, like, December 20th. Tabor was born December 23rd um, in the morning, so she called us. We rushed to the hospital and got to watch our son be born. Gene sat in a chair and cried because he doesn't do blood and guts, and I'm a medical junkie. He so, wasn't moved? He was just grossed out? Well, no, he didn't see anything because he, he knew he couldn't see okay, anything. Okay. If he didn't want to be passed out on the floor, he had to sit in a corner. So he was in the room, but no visible, nothing. So I, on the other hand, was so like ridiculously interested in like this whole process. So Mom and I helped the midwife deliver this baby. So it was pretty awesome. Gene did cut the cord, which surprised oh, okay. me because... He doesn't handle that stuff very well. A little hang down. He's like, ah, blood. He's got that memory now. Mm, Right? Yeah. So it was, I mean, the craziest thing ever. We decided that when the baby was born, I would leave my job and stay home. And so I had left, and we were converting the spare room slash office to a nursery. And so I'm home doing all that stuff and, you know, getting baby clothes ready and just generally like don't know what to do with myself because yeah. at this point I'd worked for 10 years you know as a full-time employee somewhere so I didn't know what to do with myself just being home and I'd watched some strange like dateline about mail bombs thing the night before so <laughs> we had a closed in like a screen porch on the front of our house and so that morning I'd gotten up and it was like mid-December at that point, I'd gotten up and I looked down on the porch under the mail slot. There was like a manila envelope laying on the floor. And it's it's early. It's like 7 a.m. And I knew our mail didn't come that early. So, you know, I just watched the Dateline mail bomb thing. So I'm like, what is this? And I go out and I'm like looking at it, poking it with the broom. There's no name on it or anything. There's no stamps. It didn't come in the mail. I'm like, who in the world? Jean's parents live in Logansport at this point. My parents live in northeastern Ohio. We, I know it's not from them. So I pick it up, and I hold it up to the light, and I see a couple things in there. And so I open it, and the first thing that comes out is a typewritten letter that says, you know, Jean and Paula, um, we are so excited for the stage in your life, and we know that God's blessing is on you guys, and we want to be part of that blessing. And so the other slip of paper that was in it was a cashier's check. For $4,000. And I had to count the zeros because that's a lot of money to me no matter what time it is. But 1997, (laughs) that's a lot of money. Who's ever, have you gotten $4,000 anonymously? Not even from Donald Trump. Right? I mean, so I'd like completely freak out. 
and I called Gene. He's like, is it time? I'm like, no, but it's the best, you know, the next best thing. So I tell him, and he's working for George Dreyer with Eagle Insulation at the time. And so they're, like, screaming and praising the Lord in the background, like it's an answer to prayer. And um, so, of course, you know, Tabor's born a few weeks later. We... He's born on the 23rd. We bring him home on Christmas Eve. First day home. First morning home is Christmas morning. You know, it was like the best gift that we could have ever gotten. So fast forward to spring of 98 when we go for our final adoption hearing, that sort of thing. Um, We get our final statement from the lawyer. It's $4,053. So, you know, not only did God provide... This, the child, he also provided the funds to do all the legal and the medical bills that we were on the hook for. So, I mean, just there's so many things. Our friends and family were so um, thrilled for us. Years of praying. I had five baby showers. We had clothes from newborn to 2T. We didn't buy diapers for six months. I mean, God was just so in it on every level, using not only just his people to to be the blessing, you know. Um, It was a closed private adoption. We were down for an open adoption. She was not. She wanted to, you know, close that chapter and move on with her life. She's since changed her mind on that, and we're fine um, with that. She met Tabor um, for the first time since birth at seven and a half, and she has married a really good man, godly man. Mm-hmm. Um, they have two more daughters. They Actually, they have three daughters. So um, we started meeting with them once a year, um, seeing the girls all the time. Um, the oldest daughter, her graduation, we went there. Oh, really? They all came to Tabor's grad party. Okay. Um, the the middle daughter is graduating this year. Her grad party is this weekend, so we'll probably be there for that too. So very much in her life, um, her family, they're gracious. We love them. Um, she's I since Tabor is a grown man, you know, really from about the time he was sixteen, I was very comfortable with letting him have his own relationship with her. Mm-hmm. So much so that she actually reached out to me and wanted to make sure that it was okay that, you know, he was contacting her or, you know, he had a driver's license so he could go visit her. Um, I'm like, yes, I'm completely fine with that because she played a role in just one, getting him to this world and then two, giving him to us. Something that I myself could not have done. You know, I'm, I was never in her situation as a teenager, pregnant and un, you know unmarried and not knowing how to care for an infant. I was not in that situation. So I totally respect her decisions, but I was in a different place, you know. So she did something big that I'm not sure that I could have done, you know. So I want her to be able to have a relationship with Tabor and him with her and with her family. Um, those girls are his biological half-sisters, you know. I'm completely fine with him having his own relationship with them. So He was born December 23rd, 1997. Mm-hmm. But it didn't go final until the springtime? It, we lived in Marion County at the time, and then things could change at this point. But it was three months from the petition of adoption. So he was born on the 23rd. We came back to Indianapolis, and on the 24th in the morning, because the court was open a half a day for Christmas Eve, we went downtown with our lawyer and filed the petition for adoption on 
December 24th. So 90 days from then is when you go back to court and the adoption is final at that point, as long as the biologicals haven't changed their mind. Even though they sign off their rights, um, the biological father had signed off before we ever came in the picture. And so at birth, the biological mother signs off her rights, and then our lawyer is appointed the guardian at litem of the infant, and we have physical custody. Okay. So, and then on March 23rd of 1998, we go back to court, and the judge grants the final adoption. Oh. So, and at that point, all of the medical records, everything, the um, birth certificate is all changed to his legal name, which is Tabor James Feasel. So, from baby boy yeah. blank before. Full disclosure, we're struggling with HVAC issues here at the facilities. I am sad to report that we're up to 77 degrees. We were 74 when we started, so I guess the Lord is moving. Right on. But, um, There's hot air like, in the room. <laughs> that's true. Gene's here. Um, I, uh, I don't know if you heard the Lance and Courtney short episode, but they both have a heart for adoption. Yes. Courtney was adopted. Lance was raised by his grandparents. Yes. You've already spoken so much on it, so if the tank is empty, I understand, but I've been told, and I have not gotten there yet, but I've been told that you won't learn about Jesus' love for us until you bring a child in this world. But then when adoption, adoption's an even clearer picture of Christ's love. Exactly. Because he chooses us. Yeah. What's that journey been like for you, and, and how has it strengthened your relationship with Christ? I think mostly, you know, like, People expect when you have a biological child that you have this innate love for that child. And I think you probably do. You know, I've not experienced that. So, but I can relate it to my parents or my siblings, that sort of thing, that, you know, those are your people and that you automatically have love and, and a concern and care for the, those people. And so I think just the moment, I mean, of course, like when a baby's born, if you've ever experienced it or seen it, it's a very like emotional thing. Like you think God created like this process from two cells conjoining and growing into this little tiny human that then comes out of the womb and grows into a full size person. Like it's amazing when you think of it that way, but it is emotional. It is, I don't care if that's your kid or not. You know, if you just see it, it's an emotional thing because it's just so beautiful to witness this new life like that kid comes into the world they've never their breath doesn't smell like anything because they've never eaten anything you know that's just it's just the breath you know that's all it smells like they don't know anything they've never seen anything you know it's just beautiful that at this point in time this new life come and, and it, it gives you goosebumps you know and so watching it comes from you know nothing to the culmination of this, whatever, seven pound, 10 ounce, as Tabor was, infant that's screaming and crying and, you know, has red and tons of hair and, you know, like doesn't want to be swaddled. Like (laughs) it was just the most amazing thing. So, and instantly you like, he's mine. You know, I get to leave this place with that child, whether he's any biology related to me or not. You know, it's just a beautiful picture Especially one thing that when we got all of our final paperwork for the adoption, there's a lot of legalese and, you know, the decrees and things like that. But the thing that really stuck out to me the most 
And I I told Gene, he probably doesn't remember, but there's a sermon in it because it's just the absolute depiction of what it is to be adopted in, you know, into Christ. You know, he, he is, we're joint heirs with him, but the, the verbiage goes something like, you know, so be it that this child, Tabor James Fiesel is now, you know, legally, it talks about being entitled to heirship as one biologically related to. And I'm like, hmm, there's just, that is exactly what we are in Christ. You know, we are adopted and now we are entitled to heirship as the biological Jesus Christ, the son, you know, it, it was like a, a moment for me, like not about adopting my child. It was a moment about my relationship with sure. Lord yeah. that, you know, in all intents and purposes, Jesus is like what he's entitled to. I'm entitled to, you know, what God has for had for him, he has for us. And so it was like um, a pivotal moment for me to think about who I was to God, you know, because he says that in in the word and our legal system said that about this kid, you know, that now he is entitled to heirship as if he were the biological. And from this point on, known as Tabor James Fiesel, you know, oh, so good. Sometimes at Lakeview, Ron Bond will have Doreen Bond um, yeah. preach on Mother's Day. Sure. So I nominate you. Ah. I know we just had Mother's Day, but when? next year, 2021, you're going to bring forth the word <laughs> and preach on that because it's so good and it's so mm. real to you. Paula Fiesel, the Big C, Little C podcast, otherwise known as the front girl, but not really. I'm the girl behind the front man. <laughs> that's, that, you can call me that. It's really long and doesn't flow off the tongue, but that's what you can call me. I... By the way, did you grow up going to Cedar Point? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite? Uh, well, any kind of roller coaster. And I, you know, lament the fact that I got old and my back hurts, so it's not smart to ride them anymore. So, sad. It's only been about six years since I've been. The big episode with the back happened six years ago, yeah. July. So Six years ago? Yeah. Yep. Yes, sir. No. Yes. When you got the bed and all that? Well, it was a process. Okay. So it happened in July of 2014, and then I slept in a chair for a year and got the bed in 2015. I thought this was like two years ago. No. Unfortunate. I mean, it's touchy. You know, you can bend over to brush your teeth and your back go out because it's just, it's my rough childhood coming back to haunt me. I was a ruffian, so. So the time where, I mean, we didn't see you for a little while, right? You were kind of bedridden or or chair-ridden? I was. Yeah, I didn't get up and down well, and I didn't, I really didn't do a lot of anything well. Um, Too long in one position was painful, so, uh, yeah, a lot of leg issues and just hip issues. So, yeah, uh, changing positions about every 15 minutes. And then in doing so, it was super painful. But once you could change positions, then you're okay for a while. Oh. So so this is when, didn't we bring in some kind of um, lawn chair for you yes. at, at the gear? That was, it literally like saved my life. Um, and it was a total accident. What? Ernie and Carla had bought these zero gravity lawn chairs, okay. like a lounger, you yeah. know. I thought they were hideous. <laughs> And so, um, as is much lawn furniture, in my opinion. So, they were in the pool. And Gene went somewhere. And so, I was home alone. And I was 
misery, drugged, out of my mind, steroids, so I get the roid rage on those things. So I wasn't pleasant company at all. And I had gone outside to say something to them. And here sits these two zero-gravity lawn chairs. So I think I can't really stand for a long period, so I sat in one. And the silly things, just kind of their own volition, tip you backwards. Mm -hmm. And instantly, the pressure was relieved from my back. Wow. And so I sat out there until it was was July, so it was like crazy hot. And so... I got up and I thought I'd go back inside and Ernie said, let me carry that in the house for you. And so brought it in the house. It lived in the living room with like a quilt over it for like days because I was completely in a daze, drugged. I mean, excruciating pain, waiting for MRIs. I'd had x-rays, insurance, fighting about testing and stuff like that. So I pretty much slept in it in the living room just for any sort of relief. And, you know, fast forward, I'd had testing, saw a surgeon, didn't didn't really suggest surgery for me. So physical therapy, steroid injections, like steroid epidurals in my spine. I had a nerve block. I had all kinds of stuff. So it was a process of getting me upright again, but I still couldn't lie flat. So getting in bed was just horrible. There was no sleep. I just couldn't sleep. It was just too painful. So the lawn chair migrated to the bedroom (laughs) and I slept right beside Gene in the bed, but I was in the lawn chair beside his side of the bed. Okay, okay. And then, you know, we'd go travel to my mom and dad's. It folded up like a lawn chair does, <laughs> and it would slide in the trunk under the luggage. And then we'd pop it up at mom and dad's. We'd go to a hotel for a conference. Yeah. Lawn chair would come with us. I like it. No lie. Like, it, I would get a little panicky thinking about, we have to go to this conference. Normally people think, oh, we get to go away and stay at a nice hotel and eat, you know, eat at nice restaurants. No, wow. I would get panicky because I knew I couldn't sleep in a flat bed. So the lawn chair for a year, 11 months. And Gene decided that he was going to do what it took to get an adjustable bed for me that we could both sleep in. So he sold his motorcycle and bought me a bed. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's amazing. I still, I love it. I still kind of cringe when I have to go somewhere else to sleep because I like my bed that much. I feel like an old person saying, I have to be home in my own bed, (laughs) but I do have to be home in my own bed. So yeah, I sleep in an adjustable bed with my feet elevated and my head elevated. And, you know, I still have residual things with the back. And every so often, like just in January, I had an episode Um, You know, you go back to the doctor, you get the treatments, you do physical therapy. um, And you just, when I I think it probably comes with the age, but when I was younger, I thought, you know, I'm invincible. I can do anything. I can lift that. I can go, 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 go until I'm just exhausted and fall down in, you know, dead. I'm asleep instantly. And I think that uh, having to slow down with the injury and sit a lot more and do less, like lifting less going on ladders. I love painting rooms. It's bizarre, but I like to paint. So somehow along the road of helping every friend I've ever had paint their house, I get stuck with a paintbrush. So I've mastered a technique. (laughs) So consequently, I'm still stuck with a paintbrush. And I'm short, so I have to have a ladder to get to the ceiling. And so, you know, doing those things that I love, sometimes I have to use a little bit more caution and a little more wisdom in knowing my limits. And 
we can say that in anything sure. that as we get older we gain wisdom we learn our limits and we either can live in those or we cannot live in those and for me it is actual physical pain which then turns into mental pain and the enemy can come in you, your head and tell you this is your life for the rest of your life you are going to struggle you are going to be sick and tired and you're going to hurt the rest of your life and it's going to be your life there's no escape from it and i don't receive that i know the greatest healer and he has healed me in the past and while i still have you know as anything you still have scars and even though god can restore is there still a scar? And so I have a mark left on my own stupidity. You know, like I did things that I shouldn't have done to to get to the point that my back went out to the point that it did. So I have to use more wisdom hmm. and know my limits. If I don't, I pay for it. So we can we can put that across the board in, in our walk with the Lord too. Anything that we might struggle with, you know. We can succumb to it or we can say, no, I'm not going to struggle with this. I am living in victory and I will continue to live in victory. And we can flick the devil off our shoulder that's whispering in our ear that just do it one time. You'll be fine. There'll be no consequence for doing it one time. Well, no, there'll be all the consequences for doing it one time because one time is too many, you know. And, you know, Gene said it a couple weeks ago, like, you know. All the devil can do is lie to you. Mm. And all Jesus can do is tell you the truth. So, like, I want to live in truth. So I'm just not even going to give him an ear to hear any of the temptations. I'm going to try to live in truth and victory over the things that we struggle with. And for me, the biggest thing was I am invincible physically. Mm. I can do those things. I'm strong. I can do those things. Well, I'm not strong like I used to be strong. And so I just have learned to live within my limitations on that. And I'm okay with it. You know, I don't want to be depressed about it. I don't want to be mad. I just want to like, this is where I live and I'm going to stay in my limitations. Did you cut hair through that time? Those 11 months? The entire time? Pretty much. I took off about three weeks when I was doing the initial treatments Mm -hmm. um, because the first the first one I had a nerve block and it was super painful and I had my right leg was a little wonky and unsteady. So of course, you know, doing hairy stand for hours on end and with your arms in the air. So, um, it wasn't very conducive to that. And so I did take a few weeks off at the beginning and then gradually went back, but I did kind of rein in, um, you know, my own boss so I can make my own schedule. And I used to joke that I was going to fire my scheduling girl (laughs) because she doesn't know what she's doing. Well, yeah. Um, I used to work, um, Monday through Friday, uh, probably nine hours a day at least. And then I would work every other Saturday for four or five hours. And it was not just like, you go in, do your job, and you come home. At nine hours, it was like you get up and you do your job at like nine o'clock. And then, you know, you're done with that appointment at 11, and then you have a gap. Right. So it was like nine hours of work, yeah. but it might be stretched over 12 hours. I might be coming in from the shop at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And that did a lot of things. One, it made me super tired. And two, I'd be too tired to cook dinner. Yeah. So we would go out to eat. So the money I just made, <laughs> we're spending on going out to eat. But we're also eating at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, which is not good for anybody. So it kind of messed with our like family dynamic 
for dinners and conversations. And as Tabor got older and, you know, we had more issues to discuss and to work out, it became a thing where I just didn't have time to do that. So maybe it was just the whole back thing was like God saying, slow down. And I didn't really listen well to that because I knew it. He reminded me of it. Gene would remind me of it too. And, you know, it came to a grinding halt for a few months and a few weeks, especially. So I decided I was going to draw back in and not offer the evening hours anymore. So I'd be working, you know, like nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning until 4.30 or 5. Well, inevitably, yeah. you know, it just crept back in and back in and back in. Hey, can you squeeze me in? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think innately I'm a people pleaser. And most of the time, not to my own detriment, but for something... I loved all my clients. I still, I have a relationship with a lot of them still, even though, you know, I retired last fall. Most of them, I, you know, they'd been my client. They sat in my chair as a client, but became a friend. You know, a lot of them, I walked them through, you know, proms and, and homecoming, special occasion hair. They got married, yeah. you know, so I did their hair for their wedding and now they have kids and I'm cutting their kids hair, you know, and pictures of me with their, you know, their 10 year old child that got their first haircut in my chair when they were like nine months old, you know? So these people were in my life for years, you know? And so it, it, I wanted to like say, Oh yeah, I will do your hair because you mean a lot to me too, you know? And this is just not, you sit in the chair, you know, I'm not just your service worker, just doing your hair. We have a friendship, you know? So it was hard for me to tell them like, no, I can't do this. And I did lose some clients because I reined in my evening hours. You know, lots of people work and have to do nights or weekends. And I didn't have very many weekend hours. And eventually I cut out Saturday completely. And when you've, you know, built a clientele and you've worked for so many years, you start to be able to make your own hours because I was still full, you know, and I rained down to three days a week. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I would try to be out of the shop by, you know, dinner time every night, but I was still full mm-hmm. and I didn't feel losing those, those two extra days and all those extra hours. I didn't feel that budget wise um, because, you know, tithing, that's a whole other story. <laughs> But it's proven. I've proved it. God's proved it to me, through Uh me. So, yeah, you can challenge me on it if you want. Not you. Anyone can challenge (laughs) me. So I still was, you know, making the money that I wanted to make, and I was still doing something that I loved until a couple years ago. And I was off work for an unrelated-to-back medical thing for about nine weeks. And it was hard because I didn't feel bad. So I thought that I could go to work. But under doctor's orders, no work. So it was hard to be away, and I thought that I was ready to go back. And I wanted to, like, see my people and do hair again. And the first client sat in my chair. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. No kidding. I do not want to do this anymore. you didn't see that coming at all. I didn't. Wow. It was a total, like, I was waylaid by it. Yeah. And um, so that was in February. Okay. Because we went on was about a year we went on sabbatical mm-hmm. and honestly like when sabbatical rolled around I was like thank god because that means me too you know yeah. I was really like hating at that point because I'd had a year of these feelings where wow. I was just like I love these people what's wrong with you and then I'd have these like mental pep talks like Monday nights and be like eh. and you start having these like I hate I hate my job 
panicky things every Monday night. And then I would tell myself the logical side of me would say, suck it up. You just had a four day weekend. (laughs) Everybody else gets a two day weekend. You just had Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday off. You got to work three days. Big deal. So I'd give myself these mental pep talks and people come in and I love seeing them. And then, you know, you get people in your chair that I had a few picky clients, but, you know, we came to terms. But some of these the dumb trends would come on and they're like I want this and I'm like "Mm, no you don't want that and I don't want to do it and the people pleaser I am and then you know you try it and you know they love it and you'd be like well that sucked you know (laughs) so uh, that's your handiwork I mean that's got to be a weird thing it is it is you know like when you don't feel super confident about it Because I'm like a perfectionist because it is my trade. I've been doing hair since I started cosmetology school at 15. So like, you know, the the majority of my life, I've had my hands in someone else's hair (laughs) and, you know, learning more and more and more and, and educating myself on new trends and new cuts and colors and things like that. But there's parts of hairstyling that I just hated, you know, corrective color, go somewhere else. I don't care. I hate it. You know, don't go to someone who doesn't know what they're doing and have them do something and then come and sit in my chair and expect me to fix it. Oh, sure. I don't want to. Don't put a drugstore box color on your hair and like, why did it grab black? Well, serves you right. I don't want to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. So I hated that part of hairdressing. But some of the recent trends I just didn't like. So people were coming and wanting it and like, you can do it. And I'm like, I know I can do it. I just don't like it. I don't want to do it. So, you know, they, they'd walk away happy as a lark and I would beat myself up because, you know, I perceived it wasn't perfect or something. Yeah. It might not have been. I don't know. But um, so I just was becoming more and more like disenchanted with that, even though I was my own boss, you know, like where else can you go? Well, my husband's job just gave him a two month vacation. So I'm going to take a two month vacation to work. Where, where else can you get that? You know, so, um, you know, my boss gave it to me right away. She's so cool. The best. The best. She can't schedule, but she's really a good boss. So anyway, I just, you know, coming back after the sabbatical was super hard. So I battled with it for a year. And I I really felt like, you know, I was really digging in with the Lord on it. But it was one of those moments that was like, this is who you've been since you were 15 years old. And prior to that, like I was not a girly girl. But we had horses growing up. I was always braiding manes and tails and, you know, Mm -hmm. cut my next door neighbor Steve's hair. Like, we were kids and I'm cutting hair, you know. And (laughs) I never played with Barbie dolls, but I would cut their hair. And my sister's Barbie dolls especially. (laughs) And uh, which never went over well with her. And so, like, that was just who I was, like... And I really felt like that's who God created me to be and like the profession that he created for me. And so like here I am, you know, 49 years old thinking, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do one single. I don't want to cut one more hair. I don't want to put another foil in the head of hair. I just I need to be away from this. Mm -hmm. And last summer was like a super big battle trying to get to that conclusion. Like, can I quit? 
you can't quit. You love these people. You'll let them down. Because part of the whole reason I decided to work for myself and from my salon at home is because the overhead is so low that I could offer a lower price for people. You're a dude. You get a haircut, like, what, every four weeks? Unless it's the quarantine, then, you know, you wear a hat. strong times. Right? And um, you embrace your curls, right? (laughs) And um, for the mullet that you're growing. So I'm like, a lot of my clientels are single-income families. And... I feel like the beauty industry has blown up costs. It's crazy the amount of money it costs a woman to go get her hair cut and colored. And so that I could offer a lower price because my overhead is just nil, products only. You know, I'm not paying rent. I'm not booth renting. I'm not commission oriented. Whatever I bring in, I get the whole thing, you know. So I kept my prices low for that very reason. And so I'm looking at these people. Not only is it super hard to find a new hairstylist that you know and trust and that you can come to terms with, like, this is how I want it cut or this is the color I want. So it's stressful. And um, I know they're not going to find my prices anywhere else. I know that. So I'm thinking, you know, it's a hit on a lot of levels, you know. And then on the flip side, what am I going to do? I have done hair for 32 years. Like, what else am I going to Who am I away from that? There's a lot of other things that I do and that I enjoy, but they've all been hobbies. They've not really even made me any money. A little bit here and there, but not. they're not things that I've like pursued as income sources. Hair has been that, and it has saved us through a lot of things. Uh, you know, the last the for, last two years of his gene schooling, um, I did hair and he went to school. Mm-hmm. And when Tabor was born, you know, my parents helped me put a little shop in our little house in Speedway so I could make a little money while, you know, staying home with the kid. So it has al- allowed me to stay home with Tabor all through, you know, his his whole life, essentially. So I, you know, it meant a lot to our family. So I don't even know, like, who I am, what I'm going to do with myself. So Jean's like, don't do anything, you know, do whatever you want. And I'm like, okay, I will. So I did some traveling. I went to my mom and dad's. I went to my sister's. My sister owns a candy store that does baked goods and stuff. So I went and fiddled around in her, you know, her kitchen and Uh baked a bunch of stuff. I went to San Diego by myself. Went to the beach. It was ugly here. It was beautiful there. I just did a lot of fun things. Um, My friend Tiffany is a choir director at Indian Creek High School. I made some costumes for okay. some of her choir members. Oh, geez, I don't know what all I did. And all of that, I have loved to bake my whole life. Yeah. I used to go across the street to my grandma's and bake with her. And so I was thinking, and I've made birthday cakes and stuff for friends, and I've never gotten paid for it, never wanted to as a hobby. But I love it so much. And so I was like, should I do this? I don't know. So November rolls around, and... My girl, Jonalyn's oldest, has a birthday, and I'm not about buying Little's toys. I like to do something (laughs) different and fun, and toys are boring. Fun for a minute. They break. They whatever. They're bored with them. Let's do something they remember. So experiential things. So I threw it out there to her. I was like, so she was just non-milestone year. She was turning eight. She's having friends over. She's like, yeah, she's having two friends and then her sister, so it'll be the four girls. I said, how about this? Can I bake some sugar cookies and do these little sugar cookie kits for the girls to do at this party? She's like, 
they would love that. So I put together these cute little kits and these little pop-up lunch boxy deals, fun shaped sugar cookies, like, you know, girly colors, buttercream, some sprinkles, personalized them with their names, took them over. The girls loved it. Of course, then they got to eat their cookies too. So if you know Jonalyn, you know, she, there's a picture in anything and it's a perfect picture. So she takes a perfect picture, (laughs) posts it on social media. And don't you know, She's my marketing director now. Oh, of course. Because I have gotten like a million orders from her. The one post on social media of these sugar cookie kits. I spent the whole month of December building sugar cookie kits for people. And that is when we ran out of time. Uh, you're going to want to hear the end of that story. Hopefully uh, next week is when that one comes out. Paula Feasel part three. Thank you for listening to the big C little C podcast. Thank you to Lance short for the graphic design efforts and to Jessica Albertson for her voiceover talents. listening to Big C Little C, a podcast from Current Church. For more information, visit currentchurch.net or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Current Church is located in Franklin, Indiana and meets on Sunday nights at 6 at the Gear. Theme music written and performed by Still the Hand, imaging by Jessica Albertson. Please join us next time for more conversations on Big C Little C.